I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 19 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is one of my favorite bass players, as well as a fellow traveler in the world of journalism, Victor Krumenacher of Camper Van Beethoven. As you may have gathered by now, I'm a sucker for melodic bass players who not only push the beat, but also supply inventive counterparts to the vocals and other instruments. Listening to Camper Van Beethoven's albums and seeing the band live, I was always struck by how Victor's bass parts just pop, such as on Eye of Fatima, the song that kicks off the band's major label debut, our beloved revolutionary sweetheart. Camper sprung out of the mid-late 80s so-called college rock scene, but it occupied a space all of its own. While many indie bands were loud and pissed off, Camper was playful and eclectic. Black Flag's hardcore song, Wasted, became a triumphant stomp driven by Jonathan Siegel's violin. Camper turned Sonic Youth's I Love Her All The Time into a hoedown. Take the Skinhead's Bowling was catchy ska punk. Take the Skinhead's Bowling, take their bowling. And they also took on Russian folk, punk, psychedelic rock, and Middle Eastern dance tunes. This was a band that titled an instrumental ZZ Top Goes to Egypt, and it made sense. Victor was a young member of this young band that formed in less than glamorous parts of Southern California, and he walks us through the players and incarnations that led up to Camper Van Beethoven. Singer-songwriter-guitarist David Lowry became more dominant as the band progressed, but this was a group in which each musician played an essential role. Camper supported R.E.M. on tour, and when I saw them at UIC Pavilion in Chicago, they taunted the audience by telling them R.E.O. was up next. It's worth noting that R.E.M.'s instrumental, Underneath the Bunker, has a pronounced Camper feel. Our beloved revolutionary sweetheart from 1988 was an artistic triumph that expanded Camper's audience further. But by the time of its follow-up, Key Lime Pie, Siegel and Lowry had butted heads too often, Siegel had left, and the vibe had grown darker. Despite the band's continued growth, the label wanted a hit single and insisted Camper record its cover of the status quo's Pictures of Matchstick Men. It got some radio and MTV play, and Camper continued its rise, but the band didn't survive its European tour. Victor says he's the one who ultimately decided to go home, and that was it. David Lowry went on to find greater commercial success with his new band, Cracker, while Victor continued playing with Monks of Doom, a proggy Camper spin-off band. He also did graphic design for the San Francisco Bay Guardian and Wired Magazine. Camper mended its fences at the end of the 90s and has performed and recorded on and off since then. Victor also has played with Cracker and has released 10 solo albums, including last year's excellent Silver Smoke of Dreams. His solo work has a brooding, haunting quality, and he lets his musicians stretch out. He now lives in Portland, Oregon, where he also plays with the band Eyelids. Victor Krumenacher has a keen memory and a journalist's eye for detail as he recalls the arc of Camper Van Beethoven and his own personal and musical paths. 
It's a hell of a story. Enjoy the ride. My second guest uh, on the podcast was Bruce Thomas. And, and I think of you two as kind of similar in the sense that you find these melodies that you wouldn't necessarily think would be pulled out and, and that you're both very melodic players who compliment, you know, compliment the melodies that are going on as opposed to just echoing them. Well, Bruce is a big influence, uh, that, you know, that kind of golden period of Costello from, you know, my aim is true to like Imperial bedroom. Right. Those records are, you know, really ingrained on me. Um, you know, and they were, they were records that I started hearing, um, before I would, cause I think the first kind of punk rock stuff I bought really would probably be like, probably like London, London calling, I think really something, whatever in about end of my end of the year when I was 14, December of 79, I think was the first, like, I'm going to buy a punk rock record, which felt kind of forbidden almost. Right. Um, cause it, I mean, it was really, I don't know why the dividing line was so hard at the time, but it was, but I was pretty instantly attracted to bass. I don't know for whatever reason, I kind of thought as I was getting into it, like maybe I would be a drummer, but I quickly figured out I had no aptitude. No, I didn't have the physical coordination, but I bought a bass from this guy, Donnie Rose, who was actually Darby Crash's boyfriend of all things. Um, I was in a scene, I was way in over my head because I was like mm. 15 and hanging out with these people who were hanging out with the germs who that was a really, uh, that was a pretty deep crew. And I just, I was super naive and I just wanted to play music. So anyhow, I bought my first bass from Donnie and just did the typical like plunk along with the records. Um, sometimes a little, you know, a little speed assistance didn't hurt, but that's just, you just stay up all night. I would just stay up all night literally for probably a couple of years. I could play along with songs. I had no concept of theory at all. And then I met David Lowry at, uh, a punk rock party uh, where he and I wound up talking about the Buzzcocks. And then I went to go see his band. He had a band called Sitting Duck, which played with the Dangers, which is Johnny Hickman's band at this place. I can't remember the name of the club. It was a club in downtown Riverside. And there was a big kind of punk rock night where all the local punk, punk rock bands, punk rock, new wave, whatever they were, played. And David's band and Johnny's band played. And then we were in touch just because the scene was super small and David was going, I think he was going to San Francisco state. I can't remember, but he came back for a summer and we ran into each other. I think at like a class show or something, I think like something like maybe the combat rock tour or something like that. And I just said, well, if you're going to play some music, let me know. And it wound up that we did play music together. And that kind of is what became camper. And he taught me just really like essentials. Like this is a minor scale. This is a major scale. These are the differences. Uh, you know, the trick where if you're playing a bar chord, you can watch the first finger move up and down the fret. And if you're playing on the same fret, you're more or less in the same key, just these little things like that. And it just started from there. Now, what did sitting duck his for that band sound like? And, and I saw on Wikipedia, it said that you were in a later version of sitting duck. Were you actually, I, in I was duck? never actually in sitting duck. Uh, I did play bass for David, uh, when David wasn't around for box of laughs, which was another band he was in, 
sitting duck were i kind of think like maybe the blueprint for camper on a certain level because they had they had the ska thing going on and they also had uh they did kind of the tv show uh like they play like stepping stone by the monkeys and just pretty sardonic silly sense of humor um which I really, I, you know, it was pretty good. But musically, I think they were a pretty interesting band. Uh, I, I found them, I thought they were the most inter- interesting band around here. I mean, there's a really good punk rock band called The Sins. There's this guy, Tony Brommel. And they were like a solid punk rock band. But um, Sitting Duck had kind of the angular, uh, like the angular musical side that was not really you know, we were verging on kind of the hardcore influx and, you know, there's a lot of germs influence. There's just a lot of noise going on. Um, right. You know, and also that kind of like pretentious nihilistic punk rock, you know, I mean, it's just kind of like boilerplate. Right. Which you guys end up making, making fun of pretty early. We did make a lot of fun of it, but you know, David was just smarter than that. And I was pretty, you know, I was a pretty introverted, geeky, smart kid. And so I just gravitated towards that because it was silly. I mean, you know, I tried to be a punk rocker, but I just, you know, I didn't, I hadn't earned the weight yet. You know, I was really, I was really young, you know? And so, you know, you're just kind of playing at things and, you know, I wasn't, uh, I don't know. I wasn't super gregarious. I just had this kind of small group of friends and I just wanted, I mean, I just wanted to play music. That's all I wanted to do. And they seem to have the most interesting music. So I just gravitated towards them. Yeah. David's a few years older than you, right? Five years older. Yeah. Johnny's 10 years older. So, oh, okay. So Johnny bought me beer and David taught me to play the bass. So got it. No, it's interesting. All these people who sort of, I mean, there's so many versions of so many different bands that it's sort of the same core of people who really knew each other, which is cool in itself. Uh, this, this sort of yeah, cross pollination. I still feel like we were really lucky. I mean, in retrospect that there was that much kind of talent in that pool. Um, you know, I mean, it's a crazy group of people. It's kind of like Inland Empire is not, you know, it's, it's, it's really, you know, it's more like Asbury park than it is New York. Really? You know, if you're going to go like the rock and roll metaphors, it's pretty rough. Um, it's still pretty rough. Like San Bernardino, which is the largest town in San Bernardino County, which is where Redlands, Redlands is in San Bernardino County, Riverside's in Riverside County. You know, San Bernardino is really rough and it has been rough for years. It's where Hell's Angels are from. You know, it was really kind of where like, it's really, if you talk to people who know like their drug history, like methamphetamine really started in the San Bernardino area. And, and as far as, I mean, before they were importing it from Mexico and all that, you know, people were making it in labs in San Bernardino. It's, it's a rough place. It's Kaiser Steel. Um, you know, my, my family were medical. My dad was a pharmacist. But, you know, if you lived here, you had, and it's like ranch houses, rural, you know, suburban houses, LA kind of suburban sprawl. It was still pretty agricultural when I was a kid. A lot of orange trees. Um, so it's like, orange trees, steel workers, you know, real working class. And then the people who really settled this area were really uh, settled it, you know, I mean, it was well settled, but the people who really kind of populated it when it became more of an industrial area than an agricultural, agricultural area, that was kind of really depression era, but it's like Okies, Texans, 
Arkansas, Missouri, which is where my parents are from. There's a lot, there's a big Midwestern influx, Illinois. And so my parents, all their friends, a lot of their friends were from like Kentucky, Illinois, the Midwest. Um, but, you know, we grew up in California. Again, all I wanted to do was play music. My grades were awful. And then they told me I wasn't going to graduate. So suddenly I was getting A's and they were like, why are you, how? Because I just turned it on. And then I took my sats and I scored something stupid, 1500 something. And then, then they said that it, I couldn't have possibly done it. So they asked me to take it over again. <laughs> Because wow. I was, you could take it twice, and I the first time was good enough. I was like, "I'll, I'm good." And they're like, "You couldn't have done this." <laughs> so I took it. You're again like, yeah, got, I don't need to take it again with fifteen hundred, but okay, go ahead. And I got a higher score. Camper had already started by that point, and I was working in a record store. I was working at a licorice pizza, and uh, awesome. Yeah, pretty actually. That was a great place. Um, and David was going to go back to school at UC Santa Cruz, and I was like. I think I can just transfer. So I went and talked to the, I went to the admin office and just said, can I transfer? I was like, yeah, you can transfer anywhere you want, anywhere I wanted. It's like, that's how stupid it was. And it was $600 a quarter. Wow. So I transferred. That's, that's, that, that's different too. That's way different. And so I transferred <laughs> to UC Santa Cruz, not to do anything, but to move away and really play in this band. And I don't know what the hell I was thinking. This is typical of me. I was just like, I was just going to go play in this band. You know, and I was a history major and then I was a lit major. And if I liked the class, I did well. And if I didn't like the class, I bombed it. Um, so who's in, so who's in the band at this point then? Really David and me. And then we moved up to Santa Cruz. And when we were here, we had Chris Moa, who did play with us later. He also went to UC Santa Cruz. And then right. it was really just basically a bunch of kids from... It was basically kind of kids that David knew from his neighborhood. So there's this guy, David McDaniel, who wrote the song The Day That Last He Went to the Moon, who was, you know, I think he's a reverend now who lives in Oklahoma. Um, he was kind of from the weird Christian family, but huh. really, I, you know, fun sense of humor. I saw somewhere that he'd actually come up with the name Camper Van Beethoven that and the his, Border Patrol. That was his name. Yeah, it was his name. He, he christened the band. But he uh, also had And the Border Patrol in there, which is and a we did. Too and much. when we first signed the independent project, that's what... Um, that's what Bruce was kind of billing us at. If you see the first, because uh, Bruce Leischer at Independent Project used to do these elaborate postcards for the shows that we would play. And the first one is Camper Van Beethoven or the Border Patrol. And that's, I think, hmm. late 84, early 85, when we first played at uh, the Anti Club in L.A. But anyhow, we, uh, we went to Santa Cruz... I guess I moved to Santa Cruz in December of 83. And then David and I were talking and he's like, do you want to play a show? There's this show. I think it was at Stevenson college with box of laughs. And I think there was another band called the nice guys. It's all the same kind of creative group of people that uh, we knew we were all our friends in Santa Cruz. And I was like, I guess we've got to put together a band. So I met this guy, Richie West. I had been up to Santa Cruz a couple of times to visit. And I think I had met Richie up there. Uh, Richie and I formed another band later called Wrestling Worms, which is actually hmm. uh, strangely Gillian Welch loves Wrestling Worms because she, wow. she went to UC Santa Cruz and she used to come see us and she loved us. Another memorable band name. Yeah, exactly. So uh, anyhow, we got Richie to play drums and then I, I was playing bass. David was playing rhythm guitar. And I think 
I mean, at this point, honestly, like memories are, it's like, this is, this is my, uh, this is my, my mythology is that I saw Jonathan walking around with, uh, one of those kind of like German, uh, is like a fur, uh, hunting hat. I forget what they're called, but they're, they're not, it's not like a hard brim hat. It's like a soft brim hat. Right. Uh, barefoot. It's fur. Yeah. It's for barefoot and bell bottoms with a violin case over his shoulder. And I think Chris Mullen knew him and I was hanging out with Chris and I said, do you play the violin? Cause we'd had this guy, Daniel Bloom in Redlands playing violin for us. And Jonathan said, yes, of course I play the violin. <laughs> so, uh, we, I asked him to play and at that, so I think that initial lineup, I'm pretty sure Mola was there. So it'd be Chris Mola, David Lowry, me, Richie West on drums and Jonathan on violin. And the weird thing was, is that we played, I must've played 30 minutes. Skinhead's bowling was already part of the set. We probably had the weird ska things like border ska and some other things. And, but I just remember we played in that there was that people noticed it. And we were with box of laughs, which was David's more serious kind of post-punk band, which was a great band, really good band. And, you know, nice guys were just kind of some silly, like, I can't even, you know, pop music, probably in the boilerplate of this man spot 1019 who we were close to who uh that's where we learned match we learned matchstick men from them hmm. um you know people who had you know people who liked uh like bonzo dog band uh maybe five right. older than me who kind of didn't swallow the grateful dead part but went for the, the more esoteric rock and roll so like beef art bonzo dog stuff like that and you can see that influence really start to percolate through camper because we discovered those people through these uh, this general scene. Of, so, so David's playing in two bands at once as he continues to do later in life. Yeah, in box every, of laughs and then camper. Everybody kind of had a different because everybody. I mean, I was really like I was into more serious music. Like I really liked the fall. I or, I mean, if you really know the fall, you understand they're not really all that serious. Uh, but you know, I like this really edgy, aggressive post punk stuff a lot. Um, but camper just had this audience that like almost from the beginning people just grab it. I don't, you know, there is this thing more and more. I understand it as I get older and work with other, there's just chemistry is just, it's just a thing. And we, that band had it, has it. It's, I don't yeah. know what it is, but it's just there. Well, every time I've seen you guys, which is a lot, I've always been, that's part of what I gravitate to. It's just that sort of sense of sort of telepathy among you guys. You're just a unit. And there's all this difference. What's cool about it is that there's all this different stuff going on. Like it's, it's five parts that are very intricately related but it all works together and and it's exciting when it's you know when it's coming off which it almost always is with you guys yeah it's it's interesting i mean i because i've been playing with this band eyelids in portland and chris losarenko uh saw us really early on he's one of the main songwriters in that band and he's talking to me about seeing us in portland at pine street theater probably 1986 i'm assuming and saying you know he saw a camper and he just saw like these really divergent personalities. And he said, the first thing I thought was I'm glad I'm seeing them because they're going to break up at some point. Cause it's just like, they're, <laughs> pulling, they're pulling apart at the seams. Um, and I think that's part of the magic of it. You know I mean? That's, I think, I mean, if some bands do kind of thrive on a certain level of conflict and camper, certainly, I mean, there's no small amount of conflict in that band sometimes. And I think it's just kind of organic, uh, but 
we, we can read each other really well. I mean, I can listen to David play a song and I know his writing so well. I know his tendencies so well that often I can kind of anticipate it as he's playing it for the, for me for the first time. Right. Um, and then just like the musical language, I, you know, I just did a short tour with Jonathan and Greg, just an acoustic tour this fall. And I mean, it's ESP at this point. I mean, it's crazy. Right. You guys keep playing together in all these different incarnations and they're on your records and yeah, and on everyone's exactly. records. And what was when camper at the beginning, did you have some sort of internal mission statement of, you know, we're going to sort of do, we're going to, you know, have fun with all these different genres and poke holes and pomposity and be tuneful and anti-punk punk, you know, or was it just sort of an organic thing? That is really interesting question for me. Cause it, you know, I don't, I think we were just really precocious and that there was so much imagination. I mean, you know, David said this and I think it's kind of true. It's like anybody in that band could be a band leader. Um, but you know, there was a, it was the, we were in this learning stage, right. Where you're learning about music. Like I grew up with this kind of punk rock idea and that kind of fell apart as punk rock turned into hardcore. And then I started listening to the, more to kind of post-punk stuff. And so it was already kind of broadening my palette. And, you know, like a lot of kids, I grew up listening to like the Beatles and, you know, my dad had like James Taylor records, Elton John records, the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young stuff. My cousins are 10 years older. I grew up with all, you know, inundated with the birds and Poco and things like that. I, so, and you can hear that stuff in me later with camper you know, we just, we had a pretty broad base of music. And then the Santa Cruz scene, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't orthodox, you know, people, people who went to Santa Cruz, you had the Grateful Dead influence. You definitely had kind of, you know, the more, I mean, I was hanging out with these guys who were essentially like writers, you know, literary people, people who fancy themselves poets, people, uh, you know, people who listen to jazz. Like I had a housemate who, was you know he was basically a drug dealer who was also a jazz promoter so i was being taken to like sun rock concerts and stuff and there was just this kind of explosion of knowledge and then you know i met like i met peter buck who took me to see richard thompson right i didn't know about richard until peter showed me about richard right so it was just this massive learning curve and we were so we just like had input all the time and the interesting thing is that the musicianship in camper is, is, you know, we can play any, we could always play anything. I don't like, not well necessarily, but we could <laughs> it, right. We could, we could give you a decent approximation. So people would just throw stuff at us and we would just go. And so camper, especially, you know, there's this weird uh, situation in the history, you know, before David becomes the songwriter, there's this kind of more collaborative period where, if you listen to bootlegs of us, I would say from kind of late 86 to about the time we signed like summer of 87, there's this really interesting period where we're there, there are segs between songs, really long kind of experimental jams. There's, there's interstellar overdrive thrown in there. Right. Or we're just, that, was that processional? Is that the one? Processional, on, you know, that, processional used to be, that song processional was used to be broken up and used as segues between songs in, um, in, the, in the camper van Beethoven now. Right. Exactly. Also. And on uh, the third record, exactly. But you right. know, in, in live shows, we would just break things apart. 
Um, so there's this really beautiful experimental stage before it became a more song stage. And then, you know, neither, you know, they, they're both great modes, but it's just like we had this one period where it was just a little more organic and a little bit more, um, a little bit more crazy and it, it's kind of wild. And, you know, we just made the decision not to go there. Long enough. You know, David made, David made a decision. He, he started exploding as a songwriter and he had a lot of stuff that he wanted to get out and it was good music. Like that was great music. Like our beloved is, you know, it's hard for me to say anything bad about our beloved or key lime pie. You know, they're really, really solid records that I'm very proud of. It's just, you know, we, we changed direction and you know that's where some of the conflict came from and but that's just what happens with bands you know it's right just it's it's part of when you have five guys in their early to mid 20s is kind of essentially you know i mean when camper broke up i was i had just turned 25 and wow. it was not even 30 i think so uh it it's it's pretty wild um it's pretty wild just the transfer transformation that we went through, but also it just like we made three records in a year and a half, 18 months. Just, right. Those, and those early records too. I mean, you're covering so much stylistic ground I and mean, you've got these, you know, ska instrumentals, and then you've got these kind of Russian dance, you know, like fiddler on the roof on, uh, you know, amphetamine sort of things. And then you've got great pop songs, uh, six, great pop six, songs. It's kind of bubblegum uh, bluegrass, bluegrass. I mean, you've got a song, which is one of my favorites called ZZ Top Goes to Egypt. And when you hear it, you're like, that's the perfect title for this song. Right. It makes sense that that's what that song is. It Even though if you said it to someone, they'd be like, what? Yeah, but it's just, I mean, that, and that was it. You know, we were, put, we, that song was kind of an improv, you know, we used to just get to, I mean, we rehearsed all the time. We were on top of each other. We did what bands do. We lived together. We were on top of each other. We rehearsed, you know, a couple times a week, you know, David's always been very disciplined about that kind of stuff. And it was, uh, I mean, it was really good. Uh, it was very, I mean, it's really organic, organically creative. And yeah, that's that song in particular, you know, we were playing it and it started to kind of codify. And David just said, it sounded like ZZ Top going to, <laughs> we're like, okay, there's the title, you know, and that's, yeah, I love playing that music still. It's really, uh, you know, it, it doesn't get old on stage for me. What was the songwriting like for those early records then? Like, were, were most of them sort of collaborations or were a lot of them David coming in? Were you coming in with songs? It would depend on the song. If it was an instrumental, it would be more collaborative. And then, you know, if David's singing it, you know, it's usually like the, the kernel of it or the core of it is his, you know, he's going to have the chord progression and the general, uh, you know, the general lyrical shape. Um, so he would, I mean, at first it was kind of get together and make noise and then gradually... You know, I don't think David thought of himself as a tunesmith. He wasn't really. He would write songs from time to time, and I think they were more kind of silly kind of things. But, you know, his dad his dad did like country music. They definitely had things like Hank Williams and stuff around the house. And I think David gra gradually started to realize, like, he had a way with a song. And so you can see it 
Um, like on the first record, there's like, Oh no, which is like, a, you know, everybody's kind of like little secret chestnut on the first record. And they don't, they don't, they're not seeing it because it's not really apparent that this guy is going to go in this direction. And then every record has a couple, you know, there's like sad lovers waltz on two and three. Right. And then by, uh, by the third record, we've got like good guys and bad guys. Now that's like a Ray Davies song. That's a really, that's a pretty heavy song on a certain level, you know, very simple, very to the point, but like quintessentially, like that's where David begins to get his voice. And then, you know, by 87, we are, we already have like I Fatima and all these songs. We're playing them live. This is what we get signed on. And, you know, he's really exploded, you know, and that was, you know, that's what sold us to the labels was his songwriting ability. I'm sure, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's a personality, the band just, you know, we were a hot band. We toured with REM. We were part of this whole wave of what people were trying to make money with. You know, but we had a charismatic guy who had, you know, really good singing voice who wrote these great songs that lyrically were really resonant. You know, he's just very, you know, very good at what he does. Yeah, the first time I saw you guys was actually opening for REM in 86 at UIC Pavilion. And uh, I think it was, oh, yeah. I think, uh, uh, yeah, Life Search Pageant had come out and that's what we know, I guess your, th- your third album had come out, but that was, and I hadn't seen you before. And, and, and I, I don't remember if it was actually you, it might've been you who was kind of baiting the audience by saying, I know you're all here looking forward to seeing REO. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. What? <laughs> well, we had, um, our manager had a friend, Dave Snow, who went, he wound up being partners with and Dave had worked for Kevin Cronin of REO Speedwagon. And he had a bunch of REO Speedwagon picks, guitar picks. <laughs> and somehow or another, we got our hands on those. So we were just like, you know, we would meet people at the shows. It's like, I'm, you know, I'm glad you love <laughs> REO Speedwagon. Here's an REO Speedwagon pick, you know, and people would be like, what? Um, Bill Berry loved that. I think Bill Berry stole a bunch of picks from us and started handing them out too. That's very but, funny. Yeah, we were just completely... I mean, you know, one of the things about Camper, too, is that we just never took rock, rock and roll. I mean, we we both did and did not take rock and roll very seriously. There's this really anti-authoritarian streak in all of us. But David and Jonathan really have it hard. And uh, they just did not want to be like David had a lot of contempt for rock and roll orthodoxy like from the get-go because i think he would just felt like he was from a different place because a lot of what we were dealing with was college rock you know and david didn't grow up you know and go to he didn't you know he wasn't a usc student he wasn't an nyu student you know so he always had a lot of uh you know he always was very contrarian to uh that side of things, but he's also, you know, whip smart. And also, you know, he's got a good, I mean, he's always had a good business mind. So he just wanted to operate as a small business. I think he already had that kind of, I don't think he had really figured out that that's what he had, but I think his tendencies were leading us in that way. And everybody else around us that we liked, that we liked a lot would be like the meat puppets or the Minutemen or whatever, you know, and they just were, it was just the, the, the bands that didn't really fit. Right who were like, where the fuck are you from? You know? Um, and that's, you know, that's a scene we gra- gra- gravitated out of. And also we weren't, but we weren't signed to SST. We just had friends at SST who helped us with like radio lists 
list of venues to contact, things like that. So we were pretty much a cottage industry from the get-go. We printed our own t-shirts. It was always, that was always us. Well, yeah, REM is sort of seen as the trailblazers of like the the quintessential college band that built it album by album and then eventually got signed. But I mean, they were they were still on IRS when you guys were touring together, but they'd also done that album produced by Don Gaiman. Um, and in fact, have an instrumental on there that I think you guys thought was maybe their camper song. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Peter would admit that that was probably the case. You know, I mean, they really did. You know, I gave the I gave Peter and Michael a copy of record in 80 of the first record in summer 85 and they contacted us immediately you know and said this is great because peter had a turntable on the bus um but you know rem were they had a certain charisma themselves that i think translated and you know michael could you know michael's a front man on a larger level he can bring people in and you know everybody on that band in that band had the ability like to to coalesce in front of a larger group of people. I don't know if camper ever succeeded at that so much. You know, I think we were a little bit more kind of staring at our shoes. Um, they played out. I mean, and I mean like out to people and brought them in. So by the time we were playing with, by the time we were playing with REM, they were already, already larger than camper ever really was, you know, they were just, they were just huge. And I think maybe people thought that camper could, be that i'm not ever i'm not sure that i ever really agreed with that i always thought maybe we were going to be a harder fit um which is fine you know it's just it's just some things work out and some things don't but you know people were making a lot of money off of that music at that point and i think when rm started exploding i mean you know you talked to i mean peter's a friend and you know i know that they didn't really have a lot of money at that point, you know, but the machine was working, you know, and we of course thought it was like right. giant. I mean, it wasn't giant now in retrospect, it was a couple, you know, crew bus, band bus, you know, really not, a, you know, like one semi truck of gear were probably leveraged to the hilt, you know? Um, but you know, they, they could make it work, you know? And, um, I think Did you guys look at that as, as something to aspire to, or was it sort of a cautionary tale also like where they're playing, you know, arenas a couple of years later and you're like, yeah, they've... I wanted it, but you know, I didn't really understand, you know, the problem with camper is just the, the, the competitive nature of the, of the, of the personalities and the band. I didn't really understand very well that, you know, you need to kind of codify your, uh, you need to kind of codify your product. You need to like basically establish what the product is. That's always been the problem with camper is that the, the precociousness and uh, the individual drives pull the band apart because everybody wants, everybody's got their own way of wanting to do things, their own idea of what the band can be. And we could never quite agree on it. REM could shut the door, go in the back room and say, this is what we're going to do. You know, I mean, at least, I, I mean, I don't know in the long run, I think maybe they couldn't do that anymore. Maybe that's why they decided to stop playing together, but you know, that's an assumption, but I know that they were able, I mean, cause you know, we were talking to them and I was getting advice from them. Some, some advice that we didn't follow. They what just, was the advice you didn't follow? Uh, I'd rather not say this one, but uh, you, you know, dropped it into the conversation. Yeah, so. it's true. I did. It's just like smart advice about, you know, songwriting royalties and just like how to, how to treat people in a band and just 
tendencies of managers, all sorts of things. We just that get, stuff blows up so many bands. It does ultimately, but you know, we blew ourselves up. That's what we did. And, uh, you know, but that's the nature of our personality. Let's back up to the happy thing before you get to the blow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. You, you, you guys get signed to Virgin. So it's your big major label signing. Was that, was that uniformly seen as a, a good thing or a great thing for the band? I think it was. And I think it was actually a really good opportunity. I mean, that relationship wound up working out, you know, for David and for Cracker in the long run. I mean, they certainly had some bumps when the band, when Camper broke up, but they were able to, they were able to transform and play out that relationship in a solid way. Um, it was really, you know, IRS was really pursuing us. IRS, Jay Boberg and Miles Copeland were really after us. Um, and I think we, t we did talk to Warner brothers. Uh, Virgin was a new company at that point. They right. had a lot of, there was a fair chunk of money going into them. I'm not sure ultimately where that money came from. It was universal. Order. The entertainment world was just such a vastly different animal at the, that point. But I think they were viewed because of, uh, Jeff Aroff and Jordan Harris. They, I think they were viewed as, uh, being a pretty, uh, elite, and uh and cool home and i i mean i felt good about that signing i felt like it was going to be a better like irs was kind of a mill in my opinion by that point and i did get signed to irs later with the monks and that kind of proved to be the case like irs just i don't i don't know that they always kind of thought about what they were doing so well hmm. um virgin seemed to have a pretty clear idea of what they had and what they wanted to do um you know, and when I think about it in retrospect, like the marketing for us at that time was like really good, really solid. And, and the record, like the record delivered. I don't, I mean, I have my issues with our beloved sonically, um, but that's just, you know, these things happen. I, I in a long run, you know, a record's just a, a snapshot of, of, of the time. Um, right. We spent too much money on it. We spent too much time making it. It should have been a little bit more spontaneous, uh, but it was, a, it was an improvement. Um, those are just differences that I have, you know, I probably still would have with Dennis Herring, but, uh, you know, the remastered version of that record that Omnivore put out a couple of years ago. I don't know if you heard that, but it really stands up much better. It's got a much better sound to it. You I have know, the CD of it. Yeah. Yeah. I should go, I should seek out the vinyl of it, but yeah, yeah you should, should a B it. Cause it's actually pretty remarkable. Um, but you know, I, what can you like, that's just a solid recording. Like it's a solid, uh, the performances are solid. The songs, I mean, the songs themselves, you know, whatever issues I have with the production of it as you know, like I said, the production is, is the picture of 1987 and 1988 technologically, but you know, song wise, we were at the top of our game. And, you know, honestly, that was a pretty, I mean, for me, I guess, you know, it was like the arduousness of the touring, uh, was starting, I starting to get to me, I think by fall of 88, I was starting to feel it a little bit, but I, everything up to that point was pretty fun. I mean, I had a really, like, it was a good time, you know, camp camper was, I think starting kind of 85 ish, once we started to kind of get establish a scene up through through 87 well into 88 was pretty i, I mean i i don't think i don't really recall having a bad time right uh, did there did were a the couple, couple moments where it wasn't great but you know it was, in general it was always good well that's good yeah did did the did the label 
connect you with Dennis Herring or was that you guys? I think the label connected us. You know, I don't really remember talking to a lot of other people. I might not have been put in the loop uh, as much. Um, you know, Dennis had a track record with uh, Tim Buck two, I guess was whatever the future is so bright. I got to wear shades. He'd produce did that. He, did he do house of freaks also? I think he did house of freaks. I know later yeah. he, he did throwing music. He actually did a throwing music record. I like quite a bit. Uh, oh yeah. Um, you know, and I mean, uh, you know, Den Dennis has done some work. I really quite like, I like Dennis personally. Um, you know, whatever my issues are with him as far as recording, you know, I just, I didn't know much at the time, you know? Um, so, and I learned a lot working with him for sure, you know, and some really good things that stick with me to this day, you know, they did teach us things like playing behind the beat and slowing down and being more stately, all these really important things, which, uh, you know, I mean, I think we were punk rock generation and, you know, I was really influenced by watching, you know, the butthole surfers who were all on LSD while they were playing or watching REM who played, who were on their own drugs, who were playing everything like 10 BPM plus faster. Right. Costello did that, you know? Uh, so I was really used to these kind of amped up things. So, uh, you know, I was really pulling the song and I just remember like Dennis and engineer Bev, like sitting me down and like, you got to play behind the drums. And I was like, I didn't even understand the concept. Now, you know, I listened to like the band on their first record and they're like 26 and it's, you know, I mean, it's as greasy as could be, you know, but I just didn't, you know, we didn't, I didn't even at that point, I didn't really have any, have a knowledge of black music. You know, that's how kind of naive I was all this stuff now that I strive for, you know, uh, you know, I'm a late bloomer. Let's put it that way. So <laughs> when our beloved revolutionary sweetheart came out, like I had your first three albums and I had vampire can made in oven, which is a very tuneful six song EP. And then, but the, when that, and I put it on in the beginning, you know, it starts off with Aya Fatima and, and it was really to me, like that, that moment that I have with too few bands of the, wow, this is the great leap forward. You know, like it really felt like an advance and sonically it was very tight and you could hear what everyone was doing and all the parts were sort of integrate, but, you know, really connected and the songs were really strong and it didn't have these kind of, you know, meandery weird things. Like not that I minded the meandery weird things, but there was, there was, it was not a conventional record. I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, there's still instrumentals and it's going from, you know, Oh, death and, you know, Waka and, you know, Tanya, I mean, you know, it's just, there's, there's, it covers so much ground. It was the coalescence of all of the great things about that band. Um, you know, there were moments recording, um, our beloved where I felt, you know, I mean, if it, first of all, you know, one really important thing that should be, you know, Chris Peterson came aboard at the end of 85, beginning of 86, you know, and a great, great drummer is going to transform any band. And Chris definitely transformed us. Chris is a super capable, you know, and really underestimated drummer. Um, you know, I've had the joy of, you know, we still work together when we can. Um, he's in Australia now, but like that guy can play. Um, and right. I've, I've worked with some of the great drummers uh, playing now. And Chris is in that level. Um, that really made it go back on a certain level. So if you listen, there's a lot of sophistication uh, rhythmically going on. And I think that's what made the band, especially that record. Cause you know, at that point we had worked in a studio that was, we were recording on eight track, you know, on like half inch eight track for the most part. Um, and when we finally moved into a larger studio, 
you know, we got some depth to the drums and that's one of the things that happens on that record. But if you listen to the scope of it, it's everything from kind of folk, like sixties style folk stuff, like the cover of O death. Right. Um, you know, more just kind of like, uh, you know, I would Costello like my, you know, my path belated. Um, then, you know, like Waka sounds like Led Zeppelin, you know, it does in a good way. Um, and then it's got this weird bridge, which is just completely quintessentially our language. Right. So it's this weird mesh of, you know, the Beatles, the kinks, Zeppelin, you know, it's harder and light, uh, real folk, like, you know, Appalachian folk, um, you know, and then there's like change your mind, which is just a sweet, beautiful, almost country like song. Um, it's, I mean, it's really sophisticated record musically, um, which I don't think, I mean, I think we knew that we could do that. I don't know if I felt like, I don't know what I felt like we were changing when we were doing it, but I felt, I felt excited by it. I felt like it was really, it was a really solid piece of work that didn't sound like anybody else, but it was also what I liked about what we were doing at that point was like, it felt inclusive and kind of broad based. Right. Right. Still had a lot of weirdness to it. And, you know, I've always had great admiration for people who can maintain the personality and the uniqueness of it, but get it across to a larger group of people. And I, you know, that was certainly kind of my hope at the time. You guys are also a happy band for the most part. I mean, you're ending it on life is grand and just oh, in general, yeah. Yeah. you know, the post punk thing still tended to be, you know, like Costello. It's great, but there's a lot of pissed offness in there. And, and it's not like you guys didn't have stuff to be pissed off about too, or sarcastic, but in general, you came off as a happy band and that was not something that most bands did. No. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways we were a happy band, you know, I mean, I think that's always, I mean, still when I play with camper, I mean, part of the, the thing about what camper is now for me is that, you know, for whatever reason, you know, I, I am really one of the, you know, I I'm in agreement when, the, when people say that great songwriting is you're just kind of a medium for it. Like I never know quite where it comes from. And I, you know, I, I don't really agree like if I hear Springsteen talk about like his songwriting, I just want to punch him. And I like Springsteen a lot, but you know, I, I, I kind of feel like it just kind of comes from a place. Uh, you can put a fair chunk of thought into it, but still it's when it's recorded, when the song has, has coalesced and revealed itself to you, it's just going to be this thing. Um, and part of what camper is that's special is that it fits uh, I think it made a lot of people happy. Um, and I think, uh, it had a certain resonance. That's a special, it's a special thing that's hard to quantify. And because the band has existed for a long time now, when I see people, when we play that music for people, you can see how special it is to them. Right. I don't know, like, that's the magic of it. I, you know, we can talk about it from now until, you know, the universe ends and I don't necessarily know that we're going to be able to quantify exactly what works, but it did work. Right. And it did make people feel good. And I think it made us feel good actually. Um, you know, our darkness revealed itself in different ways at a different time, but like that particular record was, it was a pretty magic thing. 
You know, right. I, I remember playing it for people and people just being like, you know, pretty blown away. And, you know, I mean, I re- like that, that was a real peak of my musical experience. Maybe not did the you, peak, but a really good one. Did you guys get wrapped up in the, you know, how is it going to sell? What's going to pick played on the radio and oh, sure. the kind yeah, of commercial yeah. stuff. And yeah, and, there was a lot of feel then there were a lot of problems actually with that record. I, you know, the song seven languages, which is on vampire can mating of them was, I think that was going to be their choice uh, to be the lead single. And so we did record it, but that's a really, that is a weird syncopated groove and we just couldn't execute that song in the studio to the satisfaction of Dennis. Huh? And now I'd love to go back and listen to it now and see. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, I know those tapes are somewhere. I mean, unless they weren't burned in the universal vault, which is possible. Um, there, those takes are around somewhere. Um, we must've done, I, I don't know. 20, 25 takes, I would say conservatively. And it could have been well more because we took a lot of takes when we did basics, we were in ocean way for, I think two weeks. So that's a lot, you know, I, I record records in a week all the time. So I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how many times we, we hit it, but I I'm sure that there was a version that would have worked just fine, but also, you know, it's pre pro tools and, you know, if you wanted a clone or something, it's, you know, if you want to do the kind of editing that you can do now is much more difficult thing to do. Nonetheless, you know, we scuttled that song. I remember Mark Williams from Virgin just freaking out um, at Dennis's Dennis had a studio called Dust Bowl, which was in the basement of his house, which is where we did the overdubs. And we would have Mark come over and do this, you know, the dog and pony show with the A&R guy. And I remember Dennis telling Mark that seven languages just wasn't coming together and it wouldn't be this wouldn't be on the record. And Mark just flipped. Wow. So, um, so we pushed Iafatima. If my memory serves as Iafatima was first. I think turquoise jewelry was turquoise jewelry was second and life is grand was third. Um, but you know, Iafatima worked really well. And in some ways Iafatima was a better, choice you know it was just kind of edgy enough there's just enough kind of like drug language in it to kind of make it edgy but not keep it off the radio um it, i mean for me like the the vibe of the song was like i mean i was just trying to actually play like credence clear water it was credence to me or credence meets the velvet underground strangely which nobody ever thinks about with that song hmm. um, you know and the whole second part is just basically you know kind of like led zeppelin revisited at the time, there was this kind of notion that, you know, we, we're going to develop you, we're going to work with you, and you're just going to, like, if you guys have it together, you're just eventually going to give us something that really works. Um, but we had, you know, we had traction, you know, everything did seem to be going on. I mean, we were, a, what, what, we were the hot band of Rolling Stone, 1988, you know, I mean, it really seemed like the grooming was, was working in our favor. Right. It's funny. Yesterday I went and looked at the, the I Fatima part one video on YouTube. Um, and of course you're, you're the, you're the first person you see cause the, that the bass is so upfront in that song and it's such a great baseline. And again, it's really melodic and, you know, it's just the sort of thing where if you were just going to say, well, here's, here's me as a bassist, you know, that's a, it's a great example. And I looked at the comments and sure enough, um, you know, this, the, the comments are, here's, here's some, in, these are like five in order. I love the bass. That's the way a bass should be played. <laughs> like, he, uh, like he doesn't get that. It's supposed to be a rhythm instrument. Yes. Just like Mike Watt. 
And then someone else wrote completely agreed learning the song on bass and it's a blast. And then the next person wrote agreed. And the last person wrote slap at the bass. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm, I definitely, you know, I think pretty highly of that work. Uh, bass is, bass is a lead instrument, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, true I, in REM also. Yeah. You know, it's I, like, I love Mike. I mean, Mike's, Mike's a, Mike's a, if you really watch Mike play, he's, he's nuts good. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he, I think he kind of knows how to understate it. I, I, I don't know. I'm always looking for the melodic statement. That's just what I, you know, it's like, I just, I didn't know I was doing this at first, but I just, I play off, I play off the rhythm of the kick drum and I play off the melody, of the vocal, you know, if I can, if I can weave those two parts together, then nice. I can get it. You know, that's, that's what I try and do, you know? And then, you know, I mean, it's changed a lot over the years, but at the time that's, I would really go and woodshed those parts. Like I would sit and really, really write. Um, and, you know, I don't do it so much now, but I'm still, I'm always trying to find like a, like I feel like a bass riff really gives a song a certain thing. Absolutely. It's just like, it needs, you know, as much as you need the guitar riff, you kind of need the bass riff too. Yeah, no, that's what makes those songs pop out. I mean, certainly I have Fatima. I don't want to go to Chelsea if you're going to throw, you know, go back oh, yeah, to Bruce yeah. Thomas. I mean, it's just like all this, you know, pump it up. I mean, that is the great thing about like Bruce Thomas and that whole era of, um, of that, you know, it's like the clash too. I mean, it's just like Paul Simonon's bass. It's like, it's kind of like brutally simple, but it, you know, it has these riffs in it, you know, and like those riffs just like make it go. That's what I loved about like John Doe too. That is all his, all those elements where you're, uh, you're not just playing in the background. I mean, there's, you know, I have great, like now I'm like, I would just like to be able to play killer Joe really competently, but that's a a completely different mindset, you know, um, in as far as just how a bass operates. Right. So you skip ahead a year. Beloved DD8. I don't remember the release date of beloved, but it comes out. I mean, basically by summer we're on tour. Um, so I think record comes out like kind of late spring, early summer, we're on tour all that summer. We're on tour all that fall. So we had this horrible conflicts uh, in the band at the get-go uh, on the summer tour because Jonathan went and basically broke ranks and complained about Dennis and the production of the record to the press, and that did not go over well. And it wasn't a smart thing to do. Um, you know, and it just, it it created a lot of tension. And so that's where the fun began to kind of dissipate a little bit because, you know, the competitive nature of of David and Jonathan were, you know, they were really at each other's throats and, um, you know, David is just, you know, he's got, he's business sophisticated. He's sophisticated on a business level. Um, you know, and Jonathan's an idealist and, you know, a major label is going to expect you to close ranks and promote the record. Um, you know, with the, you know, it's, it's, it's best done when it's a uniform song and dance. We I mean, we all know like there's a process to doing it. We were super young. I didn't, you know, I understand this a lot better now. Um, but I've worked on both sides of media and I've worked, you know, I've, I've worked in media for 30 years at that point, you know, it's it just really fresh. Uh, so, you know, I think David had, you know, he, 
he had his agenda, but everybody had their agenda. And Jonathan was running counter to it, counter to that agenda with his idealism. And it just created a, a just, a, just, it was, it began to get very unfun. So was there a musical, was there a musical element to it where, you know, David's kind of has become much more song oriented and it's specifically David's songs as opposed to, you know, the Jackson yeah. songs that would show up and. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, and then, you know, and then like, you know, I was, I mean, I liked harder, louder, weirder stuff, you know, and that's why that's what, that's where the monks began. Right. And, and David he has formed the monks of doom, like in 86 or something. 86. Like that. And, you know, David didn't like that. He didn't care for it. Cause he felt like it, it, uh, I think he felt like it took away from the energy of camper. And I can see, you know, I can see that argument. Um, but it also, it allowed me to grow as a musician in really organic ways. That was, it was not going to happen within the confines of that band. And, you know, I am musically, I mean, to this day, I'm really ambitious. I hate doing the same thing over and over again. I do get bored fast. You know, as much as I love the camper band Beethoven songs, there's an organic tension and disagreement between David and I, David wants it to sound like the record and I could give a fuck if it sounds like the record. I don't care. Like, I don't, I don't like, I actually don't like it to sound like the record. So like, if you listen closely, the way I play those songs now is nothing like I used to play those songs. And sometimes I'll get the stink eye on stage and sometimes I won't. Sometimes I get away with it. Sometimes I don't, but that's just me, you know? Um, and I, you know, I, I have no problem with David's opinion. I just don't agree with it. Um, at the time we didn't, I didn't know, uh, I, I didn't have that kind of diplomacy, uh, nor did Jonathan, nor did David. And so, uh, you know, we toured through the fall, uh, up till Thanksgiving. And then I, Jonathan went to Indonesia and I, David made the decision that Jonathan had to leave and basically told us it was the band or Jonathan. And at that point I was not going to let that band go. And David kind of had a, he had an idea in mind with key lime pie. And I don't quite know where it was coming from. Um, but he wanted to, he wanted to do this darker, more thematic, darker, uh, kind of recording. He just, he had right. an idea. And so he squirreled away with Greg. Um, and they really like Greg and he did a lot of work together where it's kind of like song form lyrics and Greg working on the melody and that's on the guitar, uh, on the guitar. Right. Which is, you can really hear it in like light from a cake and sweethearts specifically. Um, but there was a lot of, I think David just really wanted to kind of change directions. And he also really, you know, I mean, there's certainly, you know, a part of, he wanted to be in charge. He wanted control and he was the songwriter and Jonathan was just running counter to it. And he, I, you know, I don't think they, I don't think there was any negotiation happening at that point. I think it would have been nice had it been an option, but neither of those guys really knew how to do it. I think Jonathan might've been open to it, but I don't think David, felt com comfortable offering anything. I mean, were those conflicts apparent when you were playing together on stage for that album? Then? They, they, they'd been brewing for years, you know, um, they were, they, they were there early on. I mean, there were definitely like conflicts on stage. Uh, there were, you know, there were incidents leading up to it. I mean, if there, if there were two people going to get in a fight on the road in the, in the good days, it was going to be Jonathan and David. Right. Things, things did happen. It was, it was fun, but it wasn't always easy. Um, so it just, at a certain point, it just kind of broke down. 
but I like the idea that David had for key lime pie and the songs were fantastic. And, um, on a certain level, like making, doing the basics of that record, we did it at Capitol studios. I felt a lot more confident in my playing. You know, I really liked the music. I liked what I was doing. Um, so I, I had a good time making that record. And then there were conflicts in the making of that record where, you know, David and Dennis had a lot of control over it. And I felt like, well, I'm a bass player. So like I would go back to Santa Cruz and then David would get pissed at me because I wasn't around, you know, in the studio sitting there while they're, you know, forgive me, but tinkering and just endlessly getting like the proper guitar take, you know, I don't, you know, I think David now would be like, you don't have to be around. But like at the time he wanted me around, I didn't want to be around because I didn't feel like I was doing anything and I had other things to do. So, uh, so tension started and then, you know, we got Morgan in, she didn't really play on the record. We had this guy, Don Lax doing the violin. That was tedious. Don really didn't learn songs well, but he had great technique and great ability. So it was, you know, in, again, in pro tools land, it would be much easier, but they were, you know, doing multiple takes and cobbling together songs. And I mean, Don's playing on that record is fantastic. It's really unique and, 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 um, and really makes a lot of the sound of that record go bang. Um, yeah. And distinct from what Jonathan was playing. Very distinct. Uh, there are a lot, I mean, there's a lot of cool things about the recording of that record. Um, like stylistically, some of the decisions that were made just in how the drums were recorded. I, you know, Dennis wanted to minimize the bass uh, volume. He talked to me about it. I didn't really agree, but he, there was just such a, I'm trying I'm struggling for the word. There was an ethos. There was a, an aesthetic to the record that we were trying to go for. It was also really informed by hip hop. You know, we were listening hmm. to a lot of early public enemy, a lot of NWA and just were like, everybody's really digging on the harshness of those sounds, you know, the harshness of the drum machines and just the kind of, uh, you know, those, those early hip hop records had really kind of distinct tone and sound to them. And so we were trying to emulate that to some degree with how the drums were reported. It is really influenced by like, in like, uh, straight out of Compton and the first public enemy record, you know I mean? And I was listening to a lot of things like Mark Stewart and mafia and Adrian Sherwood. And I'd play that stuff, uh, for Dennis. And he's like, wow, it's too harsh for me, but it sounds really interesting. David's written all these great songs. And then the single is a cover of, uh, picture pictures of magic men from the status quo, which you guys have been doing on stage for years. Yeah. Is that, was that the record company or? Oh yeah. 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 That was, that was way the record company. I think, you know, I don't know what we were, honestly, I don't know what we were thinking a single would be. I think there was some thought that maybe sweethearts might be it, but it's too kind of a laconic. It's too uh, mid tempo and too kind of plaintive to really be a radio song. Mm. Um, you know, it's probably more deep track great. just thinking in context of radio at the time. Right. Great song though. Um, I think people were thinking laundromat, but spoon yeah. covered that one. Yeah. So, but still when we sent the record, the record had a closing theme and it did not have matchstick men and it didn't have come on darkness. So the first iteration of the record misses those two songs and has a closing theme. Right. We sent it to Virgin and they're like, no single. So there was a powwow. And so if my memory is correct, what that would be early 89, we went back 
and that was late. Well, so we guess we recorded the basics in January '89. So, so sometime in spring '89, late in the process, the record's basically done. So this is maybe May or whatever. We go back to LA and record Matchstick Men because we had Matchstick Men in the pocket. We recorded it for for uh, we'd recorded it for our beloved, but not used it. The recording techniques were so different between the two records. We had to re-record it, and so we did. We went back to Capitol for a day and recorded Come On Darkness and Matchstick Men. And it was just, I mean, it was interesting because that was just like a known quantity. Like you're just, this is going to be the single. We're going to do it. We're going to do the video. Um, but people love that song. I, I don't know. It doesn't really fit the record on a certain level. I mean, I actually kind of like that recording of it on a certain level. I think it's uh, a certain level. I actually like the recording of that better than anything else on the record. Um, but yeah, people just liked it and we knew, I mean, I didn't have any real conflicts with selling the song. Um, but it was, yeah, it was definitely a record company decision. I mean, on a certain level, I probably would like Keyline buy more if the closing team had been there, but come on darkness was a really great addition. And had he just written that or was that also like a, Oh, we need a single. Cause it's not a single. No, Come on. Darkness was, I think we, so we had this kind of, we had a band apartment on cameras in Highland in Hollywood that we all stayed at. And he had, we all had like Tascam four tracks and he had, a, we had just gotten these Elisa's drum machines. These HR 16s were kind of like the hot drum machine at the moment. It's probably like the equivalent of like eight bit animation now. Um, and he just was playing this kind of rhythm pattern and he wrote this, he did a demo and I mean, it's just full flesh and it was a beautiful song. And I was like, wow, we should record that. You know, the recording to come on darkness is just David, me and Chris and David plays the slide guitar. Um, that's why the slide is so funky. He just played it, um, on an acoustic guitar, like on his lap, like bad lap steel, huh. but it just had this vibe. I mean, it was so funny. I mean, that recording of that was just so beat the demo, but, um, it's a, I don't, I don't know. That's a beautiful song. It's a great closing song, even though it's not closing theme. Yeah, no, it's not. I mean, it, it all, it all, I think it all worked out in the long run better, but yeah, Matchstick Men was a rethink because they just didn't feel comfortable. I mean, we did spend, I mean, my God, we made a video for, uh, for I was born in a laundromat. I think I'm in it for all of like three seconds, but it was like two days hanging in the red Marin headlands in a, in an old, uh, was a bunker that they they had these guns that were trained on San Francisco Bay in case the Japanese invaded in World War II and these uh, these bunkers were all abandoned and we took one over in the Marin Headlands brought in uh, you know it was a ridiculous film I think it was a hundred thousand dollars we spent on that video wow and it was freezing and it, never, and it never came out right no it's out it's out I think is it I don't I've yeah. never seen that wow yeah it's like David and Morgan walking around in a trailer park. <laughs> like Novato. All I remember is we had this guy Digby who was, had been a roadie for the clash and he was kind of sweet on Morgan. He was hanging out. And he used to like to smoke weed. And I just remember being just like bomb stoned and freezing in this bunker while we're playing, you know, it's like a concrete bunker in the rain. You guys are underneath the bunker. Yeah. Well, we were definitely in the bunker. I mean, it kind of reminded me that, that, well, speaking of the clash at London calling video where they're playing on the pier in the, in the rain is the same kind of, feel so it was, Got it. it was a strange it was a strange 
time. And it was, you know, when that video came out, it just didn't seem to get any traction, but you know, I mean, I, one of the things about key lime pie is that, you know, I think David felt like it was not performing well and it was kind of a disappointment, but you know, other things to remember is like, you know, the edge said it was his favorite record of the year. And, uh, you know, I had a pretty overt reach out from the U2 guys. I was in San Francisco on that. Bono and Edge were at this party for this uh, artist in the mission. And, you know, I mean, there was real talk of us opening for them and what uh, what turned out. The Pixies wound up getting that slot in 91 for whatever Octum Baby. Um, right. You know, so, I mean, I the... the uh, the stepping stones were, were laid. And I think that was part of like the great frustration of the band breakup is because, you know, whether or not that record had performed in the way people wanted it to, there was definitely like chatter. Like we were going to go, we were definitely going to go up another notch um, or two. And if we, it had, it had enough legs and among its admirers. Oh yeah. And then, you know, I mean, and a lot of the songs that wound up being on uh, the first two cracker records were in various forms, uh, we were, had started playing some of them. St. Cajetan's being one for sure. Uh, James River, which showed up later. There were, there were some really, and that, you know, that material was good. I mean, it was going in a good direction. It was a good, I mean, I love that record. <laughs> it's just like, to me, it's <laughs> like, that's the best one. It's the moodiest one. And I'm, you know, I'm the mood, one of the moody ones. I, I, I like moody things. I like dark things. Um, right. Yeah. It ends with come on darkness instead of life is grand. So like that, just right there, there's your contrast between the two albums. Exactly. You know, and it's just like, it's just, it, 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 it but it, 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 I don't know. I mean, in some ways I really think our beloved is really like the band, like that is to me, quintessentially the camper band Beethoven sound and a, and a great, great record, but it's just like, that's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a standard, great rock and roll record. It's got all the good elements, a little dark, a little light, you know, makes you feel good. Um, you know, it rocks when it needs to, it's beautiful when it needs to be, you know, key lime pie is just kind of like, you know, it, it was just a little bit more brutal, but you know, that's kind of how I was feeling at the time. So I felt like I felt pretty, pretty solid on it. Um, I liked the cover, how kind of murky the cover was. I liked everything about it. Um, but, you know, chemistry is just another thing altogether. And things were just, you know, on a certain level, the irony of Jonathan leaving is like, I, I felt like on a certain level, it was like when Jonathan and David were getting along, they kind of were, uh, you know, they were buddies. Like, that's the that's weird thing about them. There were like points where Jonathan and David could really have a lot of synergy between them and a lot of creative uh, kind of creative cohabitation. Um, they, they were part of the leadership team and when they couldn't work together anymore, it just, I think David isolated himself on a certain level because he didn't really know, like we were having a lot of trouble just being friendly um at that point you know but there were a lot of you know i was coming out at that point and that you know i was in a really uh insecure headspace and then also you know i was starting to have like the monks were i wouldn't say we were successful but you know we had like this i had this platform that i could use to kind of work out whatever musical stuff i wanted to work on 
and you know camper just you know i was just the bass player and i'm you know my problem my problem has always been i'm not just a bass player i just i kind of interpret the world musically and things are just going to come out of me and that's just what happens um so and the monks was three-fifths of camper at that point, yeah it right? was and it was just like or we, even four-sixths if you count david Immerberg yeah and we were just playing whenever we could it was always you know the whole thing was it was just there wasn't as much expectation on it but there also wasn't uh there wasn't the tension it was just like the monks to this day i mean whatever you know whatever chemistry that camper had in part was the tension the monks just never have I mean, it's not, I mean, David Emmerglick and I have definitely had some pretty big disagreements over the years, but we've just been able to do what we wanted to do. Right. And, uh, and get along, you know, and there was always a lot of simpatico in that band. Um, Did you like being out front also? Cause you're able to do that in the monks and not. Yeah. Really- to some, to some degree, but I really, what I like more than anything else was just, we were fucking loud, you know, we were really loud and really, uh, like I played hard, you know, and like really, uh, it was hard. Like it wasn't the monks were not easy. It wasn't easy. Right. I don't like it to be easy. That's just, just me. But like, I don't like, I don't, I like music when I know it well enough that I don't have to think about it super hard, but I have to work hard to get it done. Right. If that makes sense. You know, I like to work at it. I don't, cause otherwise I just feel like there's this elusive thing when you're on stage and this, this still works for me. It's like, if I have to work at it, then I'm very involved and I lose, I lose time. I get, I, I'm in all the good places that I want to be. Um, and if I'm fairly well rehearsed and know my material, well, then I can, then I can transport the whole thing. Um, and if I'm just on autopilot or, you know, and that when I'm just a bass player, that's why I don't like to play it the same way. I don't want to be on autopilot. I want to be engaged. Right. Right. And, um, so that's what the monks always offered, you know, this is like, I just had to, I had to work hard to play that music. Um, And David wasn't happy that this was coexisting. He was not happy with that. Um, and I think there was a real, I mean, camper was really breaking at that point. You know, we were really being pushed pretty hard and everybody was exhausted there was a lot of tension, you know, we were on tour pretty constantly for the, we were on top of each other for well, we'd been on top of each other all the time, but no real breaks, no real vacations to speak of. And, you know, we were in Europe and it was just, we were all sick. Uh, we'd been on the road for months. It was really hard traveling, really cold, really miserable. And that's all doable but we weren't getting along. Um, and you know, David was not on his best behavior and the tension was pretty palpable. And, you know, I think he, you know, he likes to say that it dissolved like a urinal cake. I, you know, I disagree. I, there was, there was some real, there's some real hostility and real tension and it was just unpleasant. And I made a decision that I would not make now, uh, to go home. Um, when we were in Sweden, and I talked to the band and the band decided with me, um, you know, and that was my, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of regrets and I don't know that, that I even really actually truly regret that, but I didn't handle it. Well, I don't, I don't know that the band would have survived, but, um, the way it ended wasn't right. You know, it was, it was pretty brutal. Um, so it ended with you walking, not 
with David walking? No, I walked. I just said, we're done. Um, I just didn't, I did not want to be around him at that point. Like I had no interest. Um, you know, and this is just me, but it was like, I hit contempt with you. I want you gone. And I wanted David gone. So I just, and people were really miserable. Like Greg was already telling me he was going to quit when he got home. I, Amy was playing with the band. He's kind of a hired hand. Peterson was miserable. Morgan and David were not getting along. Um, that there was a lot of heated, ugly arguments going on. And it was just unpleasant to be around. What was the basis of that? You know, I don't know. I mean, you know, we were uh, just, just not, uh, this is rock and roll. Let's put it out. Right. Cause you guys have this album that you're all really happy about. And yet yeah. you're all you know, at each other's throats by the end of it. Yeah. And that, but, I mean, there was a lot of rock and roll going on and, and every, yeah. in every aspect of rock and roll that you can think of all of the, all of the classic, not good things were, were happening in spades. I was, you know, a pretty good mess. So, you know, it was a heat of the moment decision. Um, wasn't good. Like really wasn't good. Um, went home, no money. Uh, you know, and I think, I mean, there was so much tension around us and it was so apparent to the people, you know, my friends were like, well, I guess I'm not surprised. You know, I mean, we, we were known, we were known for not being like the happiest group of people together. Um, by that point, for sure. So, um, you know, I think Virgin tried to, uh, you know, I got phone calls from Mark Williams and Dennis. And I remember Dennis saying, it's like, you don't want to be like the big star of your generation. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I, you know, I don't, I don't care. Um, you know, it's pretty headstrong. I, you know, maybe there would have was a compromise. Maybe there was a way to work it out. I, you know, honestly, at this point, it's, it's hard to say, um, you know, I mean, as we've gone forward, you know, some of those tensions are still there. It's, I think at a certain, when you're in your twenties, it's really hard to understand that sometimes things just don't work quite the way you want them to, but right. they can work, but you have, like, you have to be good with the compromise. You have to be okay with the compromise to be involved with the group of people. Um, I wish I'd had a better understanding of that at the time, but I didn't. Um, but I don't know that anybody else really did either. Uh, so uh, yeah, it was, I mean, in some ways it was a pity and a shame and in other ways, I think it, it was just kind of inevitable, you know, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for what David went through, you know, he was leading a band that were not, you know, we had a lot of animosity towards him. He knew it. Um, you know, I think he wanted to do his best. Um, but you know, he, he's not always the easiest guy and he had, you know, he had an agenda, you know, and, you know, the conflicts were natural, you know, they just were, were different people. And that's just the way that's what happens. Actually, I'm not I'm not a cracker hater by any means. I, I I really respect that band a lot, and I respect those first rec few records, especially. Are just, they're really good, especially when you have to go and learn how to play Davy Farragher's bass parts. Um, that was fairly daunting for me because uh, you've played with them a fair amount. Yeah, I was a bass player quite a bit. Um, so, like learning how to do execute that music well uh, was a thing, and I think 
like key lime, like key lime pie was one thing, but you know, like kerosene hat, they kind of made on a certain level, they made a record. Like I would have wanted to make, uh, you know, before I was able to, um, just where I think they, you know, they set up, was pretty organic setup. Don Smith just had them play takes until they felt right, you know? And so that was, uh, it was interesting, but it wasn't the kind of music I was interested in playing at the time. But, was it hard when, when that cracker record came out, were you, were you like eager to hear it or were you just like, oh, I, can't I wasn't it. interested. I, you know, I mean, there was so much, I did go see them, at the Warfield and, um, I think they were opening for the sugar cubes and there was just, uh, it was I a weird moment for sugar cubes too. What a weird yeah, feeling. I, it was a weird feeling for me. I didn't really get it. They were had like the shorts and the flat bill, uh, the flat bill hats. And I just had a, I just didn't, you know, just didn't, it didn't catch for me. I didn't get it. You know, I got it later. Um, but that's the way things are, you know? Um, like early nineties, what, what was I listening to? I mean, you know, I was also like listening to like Ornette Coleman and Mark Rebo and I was just going in completely different, but I was always kind of into the muso side. You know, I did have a period kind of in my solo work where I wanted to just kind of like have a band that played fairly simple songs that we could just kind of, uh, improvise with. And, and I, I had a really good band, like a really, really great, little bar band and i just made some idiomatic decisions to kind of simplify things so i i got it eventually you know that that there's a really good reason for music like that to to work but i think my musical snobbishness was just in the way in the early 90s well and you've and you've obviously put out a lot of solo albums now uh oh, yeah. your, your latest one silver smoke of dreams is really really cool album it opens with this eight minute epic um uh confirmation bias uh which uh asks do you know what you believe which is a is a great line to go out on um tell me about just you as a songwriter like did it did it take sort of being out of camper and years later that you sort of blossomed as a songwriter or were you doing it all along and just not expressing yourself that way no i just you know I wanted to do it, but in the, I was in bands and like the monks writing was very collective. Um, there were a few songs that, you know, I actually wrote that I think, you know, hold up. And there were a lot of songs that I wrote that were awful. It just didn't, you know, it's, but that's like, like I said, I'm kind of a slow, uh, I'm a late bloomer, a slow learner. Uh, but I started writing songs really, what happened was that, you know, David Immerglick left the monks to go play with Cannon Crows and Jay Boberg gave me like $6,000 and a cassette tapes of a cassette, a box full of cassette tapes of female vocalists. Cause he liked my songwriting and thought that if I got a female vocalist and did kind of the Mazzy star thing that maybe he could do something with it. And, um, they didn't opt to pick me up, but I did start, writing and i just started making these solo records really low budget but you know the thing was is like technology had changed so much by kind of mid 90s that you know people i knew had eight at studios in their house and i knew all these great musicians who just you know we started to be able to record at home so i just kind of figured after the monk stopped playing that my life, I started doing graphic design. I started working as a creative director for this newspaper. And I just kind of figured that my life would be like, I'm just going to make these little records at home and that's just going to be what it is. And then I'm going to have this other job. And there was a whole cool group of songwriters in San Francisco. It was like, uh, 
well, there's like American Music Club, and then uh, what's his name, Richard Buckner uh, was. Uh, I played. He had a band called The Doubters that I played with quite a bit. Um, my solo band would open for him, and so I was kind of like, well, this just kind of works. And then I, uh, you know, Dave Alvin, who'd been an old friend who I toured with with Camper a fair chunk and we'd gotten to know each other. He did a record called King of California. And that, that record caught my ear. Um, there was something going on there. There was something in that the emergence of Calexico and there are all these things that are happening kind of mid to late nineties where finally I felt like, okay, you can do like a fairly straight song with the G chord, but you can dress it up in different ways. Um, I was, I was hearing ideas, uh, in songwriting that didn't sound like Tom Petty, you know, and like no, no knock against Tom Petty. Cause I'm a huge fan, no knock against cracker. Cause they get accused of sounding like Tom Petty. It's just, I didn't want to do that. Um, and there were different kind of waves coming through. And so I just kind of kept writing and it took a long time by about late nineties, early, early two thousands, like 2000, I felt like it was writing really solid songs. And then it's just something I've just kind of kept up. I developed a thing. I mean, essentially the way my life worked, it's been interrupted by COVID, but the way it worked for many years was that I had a day job. I played music. I got paid money to play music with camper. I took that money and I put that into making music that I wanted to make just to make it with no, no commercial influence, no pretext, just going to put out the records myself. I'm going to do them as I want to do them. You know, they will, you know, it's my, it's my art prep, my art projects, the way I want to do it. Um, which has been great. I've done it like 10 times and I just keep doing it, but I've, I've learned how, uh, this is what I've learned about myself over the years is I just express myself musically. That's how I do it. The world goes on, things get thrown at me. It comes out at some point in a song. I don't always write, but once I start writing, it just comes, there'll be a wave of it. And then I have to figure out a way of documenting it and I just do it. So, right. Um, and it's been, you know, it's been really rewarding. I, you know, I don't have a huge audience, but I've got this really nice core audience. A lot of people in the camper and cracker crowd have gravitated towards it. And, you know, I can do a pretty solid audience on the West coast and, you know, people like the music. I get really you know, I like working with great musicians. That was another thing. It's you just, got a great core band is what I was going to say too. It's like, yeah, hard camper, but you got great drummers. You got Michael Jerome on this record and yeah, just fantastic people, you know? And it's like, it's just, I just wanted an avenue where I could kind of go and work with people who I really admired and somehow or another I made it work. So for me, it's just, that's the, that's the really earnest, uh, desire is just to play good music. I don't really, you know, I'm not a great marketer. I don't really know how I've never really threaded that needle perfectly well, but like, I know I make really good records that sound great with really great players that, you know, they, they, they definitely stand up. And, um, yeah, that's, I just want to, you know, it's like, I want my art, like I want the art I really care about to be in its purest form, you know? And, um, it's been, like I said, COVID's made it interesting because like my, my economic model has now been kind of shattered. So I had, I'm having to rethink, you know, which is a drag, but everybody I know is. So. Well, you and I have bonded also about being in the journalism world. You were at the you're oh. a graphic designer. You were in the San Francisco Bay 
Guardian. Yeah, I was the creative director at the Bay Guardian for six years. And then Wired was, uh, yeah. we used to talk when you were at Wired. Um, I mean, which is more messed up now, the world of journalism or music? I don't know. You know, I mean, this is just a whole kind of like sad state of affairs that, you know, we, we can definitely, have, we have simpatico on it. It's just, it's the aggregation model where, you know, the, 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 the core of the invention of the content is ignored because the content is just content if that makes sense right right the the, the i hate that word content i do too you know it's just like it's 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 insulting but it's basically like we've given all the power to the people who aggregate the content to people and the content has diminished in its specialness in the way it speaks to you um and so i mean on a certain level i currently I'm just like, I'm in rejection. Like I just pulled a bunch of my music from streaming services. Uh, you know, at some point, you know, a lot of these records are out of print, you know, there've been small runs like two, 3000 units, you know, and I'll sell 500 or a thousand through the mail. And then I'll keep a thousand and sell them on the road over the course of like a decade. Right. And a lot of these things are just well since gone. Cause I've been doing this for 25 years. Um, but yeah, I'm just trying to rethink like how, how to do it in this market because essentially we're in a place where nothing's curated and scenes are so uh, dissolute. You know, I had a, a scene of people that I interacted with. We discovered things, you know, in the way that people discovered things. You know, you didn't have cell phones. We went to record stores. We went to bookstores. You talk to your, you know, your peers you talk to your teachers, you talk to older artists and you get an idea of where to go. Like that through line, you know, like I'm going out with a young guy now who's like whole view of music is based on like SoundCloud, you know, that's what he grew up with, hmm. you know, and it's say, it's, it's just alien to me. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, and I get things changed. Like I'm not, and I'm not a technophobe, but I just feel like, you know, we've really, we've diminished the power of content. And I think there are a lot of reasons for it, but, you know, in a long, in a long run, you know, you think about the trajectory of like the 20th century and, you know, like the advent of like Edward Bernays and the advent of commercial marketing, you know, they started with world war one and then it was cigarettes for women. And then it was, you know, post-world war two, uh, American marketing, you know, start with Coca-Cola and Paul Mall and like work your way through the great products. You know, it's all this kind of like branding. It's that, that side of it. And then, you know, you interrupt that model of selling advertisements with this aggregation model of technology and, and also just all the problematic nature of how the technology uses algorithms to, you know, reinforce your confirmation bias. Right. And, you know, we have, we have a huge mess. So, uh, you know, I find that there's a whole wave among, you know, people maybe 40 and older or artists I know who are a little, who, who kind of remember the previous world, um, of, of removing yourself to some degree. I don't know how effective that is. I don't know whether I, I don't totally agree with that or not. Like I said, I just pulled music from streaming, but you know, I, I intend on getting it back out there. I just want a little bit more control about how it's done because so many of the, 
individual deals that I've had over the last years, they're so disparate. There's no real control. So I'm trying to bring everything back into a place where I have more control over it. Makes sense. But like it, it's yeah, it's just super problematic. And, and I don't, you know, when people like Richard Thompson are having trouble playing their band salaries, which I know to be true, you know, uh, you start to wonder like, you know, how much respect do we have for this? You know, I'm not, you know, I've worked with some great people and I feel very fortunate in my career, but like, I'm not Richard Thompson. Richard Thompson should be able to go out and do whatever the fuck he wants as far as I'm concerned. Right. I agree. You know, um, so I, you know, where's the justice in that, you know? And I mean, he's one of our masters. So yeah, he's, he, he is a master, you know? So when I know that there are budgetary concerns, you know, and that's why the band went from like, you know, it was first time I saw Richard Thompson, it was like a 10 piece band, you know, and it was great. And it just has gotten smaller as budgets have gotten tighter. You know, I, I don't expect everybody to have, you know, super long careers. I've been really lucky to, you know, I guess we're I'm approaching 40 years of doing this, but um, yeah, the whole model of, you know, for years and years I had whether or not, and this also helped like do the solo record, records, but um, for years and years, I, you know, we sold physical products and every year I could expect some royalty stream from the people who were selling the camp records and sometimes the monks records. And it was not a lot, but it was several thousand dollars. It was enough to do something, you know? Um, and that's, I mean, that's gone, 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 you know, it does simply does not exist. I mean, occasionally we'll license, we'll relicense the old records, uh, you know, to somebody like cooking vinyl or, uh, you know, like yup rock would be another example. And, you know, we'll keep the catalog propagated, but it's, you know, you'll get an advance. I don't even know these people are making money back on their advances to us at this point. Right. I know I did the third mine record two years ago with Dave Alden. And I think they sold like a couple thousand. Right. And they were over the moon. (laughs) It's like, okay. You know, and that was a record that was made in four days, you know? So, um, yeah, it's just the strangest, it's the strangest time. I mean, I know the people I know who made money with their songwriting, who have some money in the bank are kind of able to kind of keep things moving. It's been interesting because we've just done, I've just done my first road work um, in about 18 months this past fall. I was stunned that our little, I played bass for this band called eyelids and then I was opening for them solo. And by doing some house shows, we were able to make it, I was able to break even, which kind of blew my mind. Um, but break even for me and my economic model, break even doesn't work. Right. I need, I need something that makes me money. I, if I break even overall, it's good, but to keep my personal creativity going, I need some money. I need to make some money to do it. Right. Yeah. Everyone's like, Oh, all the money's in the touring. You don't worry about how there's no revenue in the recordings anymore, but that's not exactly. And then the COVID touring too, you know, first of all, you have all sorts of uncertainty about shows because of COVID. So the clauses, I mean, we were dealing with this with like the third mind tour that never happened, but basically, you know, if a club agrees to book you in, there's now a closet, like, you know, if, there's a municipal shutdown or whatever. We're just, we shut it and you don't get paid. Right. It's, 
it's kind of force majeure on steroids. And that's a huge drag. Um, and then also, you know, your kind of alternative small market, something like third mind, like if you, if we're, but if I were budgeting a tour like that, to get a tour like that done, say we can go to Seattle and Portland, San Francisco, LA, we're going to get, you know, say we're going to get $8,000, $10,000, like that's great. But you know, we're going to go to Tucson, we're going to get $1,500, two grand maybe. And that's just barely enough to kind of pay for the gas and get the hotel rooms. Cause you know, you're talking, I'm not going to put Dave Alvin in a room with somebody else. It's like, that's not, you know, right. you're not going to do that. That's just not, he doesn't deserve it. You know, he's lived hard enough. He doesn't. He, so the, the, you know, these are the things where, you know, I'm looking at this model now, you know, this is why people are like, his camper broken up. It's like, no, but we, like, there's no, there's no real economic incentive to go out right now. I mean, I know people would love to see us play and I would like to go and play for them, but um, you know, I got a violin player lives in Sweden. If we used Chris, we got a drummer who lives in Australia. It's $3,000 in airfare just to get in the door. You know, and you start to like look at overhead and and going out there. You know, campers never lost money on the road, never. You know, and and, and there's You've no gone reason. out with Cracker a lot, so it becomes this double bill where there's sort of this cost effective sharing exactly. thing. And you know, and, and I sometimes I'd rather see like the I'd, I'd rather see like the really long camper set. Sure, yeah, I think I think there are a lot of people would, and I get tired of that. But then there is also like an economic reason for doing it because we just, right. No, I understand. It's cheaper. I mean, and it's just. You know, and like David, you know, and I think admirably so, he doesn't like to go out and lose money. You know, I think he's not lost money doing this, you know, and like, you know, I have projects that lose money, but the thing was, is that I made enough money to cover that. So it's like, I had a break even model, which I was fine with because I have another way of making a living. So it's just this whole, uh, it's this whole mess. And it is, you know, I started playing bass for this band called Eyelids, which is a, it's a great band. Uh, it's a couple of veterans from Guided by Voices and Peter Buck produces it. A bunch of guys who played with Elliot Smith. It's a bunch of Portland people. And, uh, you know, we just went out to New York and opened for Dream Syndicate and we did the short run. And I, you know, I did make a little bit of money, but, um, you know, it's hard, you know, and, and, and I am 56 and I've been doing this for 40 years and like, you know, we're going to go out in the spring and I'm like, you know, we're, I'm just waiting to see like how I feel about it, you know, cause I got to a point where it's like, I mean, yeah, I have to share a room, but at least I have my own bed. Right. You know, I've, I've graduated from, you know, sleeping in the van or sleeping on people's floors like a long time ago. And I just, I'm not kind of that mode. I'm just not that motivated anymore. Right. So it, it you know, I can love the band from, you know, here to eternity, but you know, to go and kill myself to do it at this point, like, mm, you know, as Bob mold says, it's a young man's game. So, uh, you know, we're just going to, yeah, we're, we're, we're seeing what the sustainability is at this point. Tell me the happy story of how you all like got along again and who reached out to whom. So like late 98, I think I got a phone call from Dave. We, we'd been kind of back in touch. Uh, you know, I liked, I really liked golden age, that third record of theirs a lot. And I still right. really love that record. Produced uh, by Dennis Herring, right? Produced by Dennis Herring. And, uh, and he, he and Dennis had worked with Mark Linkus on Sparkle Horse other uh, other records 
you know, I was talking about like kind of that 90s stuff where I was getting a, a model for kind of subverting the songwriting sonically. Like the Sparkle Horse records were great. Um, really, really good. And so I went to go see Sparkle Horse and Cracker on that tour. Finally talked to David again. He reached out to me. He was doing a film in San Francisco at one point. We went and hung out, had a drink, and that was good. And then he gave me a call and said, you know, we fired Bob and uh you know we we're looking for a bass player and i was wondering if you'd be interested in playing bass for us for a little while I mean, it was out of the blue and kind of scary and weird but i was like give me a set list and i'll do it and i went and it was super fun i you know i was uh it was really good you know for all attention we've had between us you know i do i love david and i know he loves me and it was good to see him um i've always gotten along with johnny pretty well and frank their drummer uh you know frank played with like joey ramon he's played with the dictators he's a really solid kind of punk rock drummer and i had great uh i got a lot of muscle with him basically uh that was it was more fun than i expected it was kind of daunting and there was you know, definitely some cracker songs i don't like there's some stuff that's kind of a little boring from my end but uh, learning it and especially like going in and like learning like Davey Farragher recorded this stuff. I love Davey plays for Elvis Costello. Now I love his bass playing. Right. Just a, he's a, he's a master and it really made me a much better musician. Um, so it was like a really, uh, it was really fun. Um, and I hadn't been in front of, you know, I hadn't been in front of an audience like that for a long time. The audience was really happy to see me. It was all very rewarding. And then we did this tour where we brought Jonathan and Greg in just to kind of sit in um, with Cracker and play some camper songs and people responded to it really well. We did a few tours like that over maybe a two year period, maybe three. And then in 2002, we just decided to put camper back together and we went to New York and rehearsed for a few days. And we did, I guess, three nights. I can't honestly remember. It was about three or four nights at the knitting factory down by the old world trade center. Um, and, you know, the reception was crazy, crazy good. And there was this very interesting thing for me where I realized when I was talking about like the importance of the music, not just to me, but like the importance of, me, of the music to other people uh, that that came through for me at that point. Um, and that was pretty humbling, frankly, um, and, and, and really nice. Uh, to to realize that the records that we'd made that we felt so good about because you know the buzz was strong and and i think we did do good work that it was remembered well um and so you know we just developed this model and it was gradual at first but so we started playing in 2002 and by 2004 because you know i have a day job david's an academic you know we have these time constraints so we just developed this model where we could tour twice a year summer and winter um, and did it regularly. And it became, um, you know, we did the festivals, the camp out and the camp in, and, um, you know, it was, it was a really, uh, good, solid, long run. And so we did the last camp out in 2019 and, um, you know, we made what, so we made new Roman times in 2004, I guess. I don't know my brain doesn't remember dates all that well sometimes. And then, uh, La Costa Perdita second album of the reunion in 2011. And then, 
um, El Camino Real. El Camino Real in 2013. And I, I think at a certain point, you know, when we started writing again, you know, some of the tension started renewing. There were some issues for sure. Um, and so I think we just kind of decided that we would just be, you know, my, maybe more like the X model, where it's like we're a live band. We're not necessarily making, I mean, I'm not ruling out. We may again record who, who the hell knows, but we just developed this thing that worked um, in a world where it's hard to have things that work. And it was reliable and it was regular and it was like clockwork. And in some levels, you know, cause it went on for 15 years. Some years it was like, God, it's Christmas and I've got to go on tour again. Cause there's always just a huge crunch. Cause it's like, okay, I'm going to take this month off. We want to work. The people I work with were always great about it. But you know, when you tell people you're going to be away for a month, it's not always the greatest thing. And it went on for a long time. So it, on some levels it got exhausting traveling in the winter as we got older, I think was tough. Was it a big thing for Jonathan and David to patch things up or did that? You know, they, they actually had started patching it up beforehand, um, really through Jonathan's, you know, cause Jonathan played uh, violin and guitar and sparkle horse and David and Linkus were friends. So I think that had renewed. I mean, that's still, that can get very spiky between them. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they're just, that they're just, they're just wired very differently, you know? Um, you know, they both, they both, they both can be difficult. I'll put it that way. Not like I'm an angel. So, um, yeah, you know, again, it's a band, you know, and I think, uh, it was interesting because so all in all the experience of, of the reunion was for me, it's been extremely positive. And one of the great things about it is just, uh, because it's been this consistent thing, it almost gets this kind of familial tone you know, audiences keep coming back. I've gotten to know our audience, uh, a lot of people really well, a lot of really excellent people, very supportive. Um, you know, and that's been like the real beauty of it is because, you know, we just kind of developed this organic ecosystem, very DIY that's allowed me to sustain, you know, my career, whatever we want to call it in, in music. Um, so I've been really, really grateful for it. You know, and then there's band chemistry on top of it. And I think by 2019, you know, putting on those festivals is a lot of work. And David and Valina, our manager, have done a, a, a large chunk of that work. And I think it was just, it was kind of wearing on them. And I think also because it, we'd done it for so long, there was a kind of a predictable element to it that I think we wanted to violate. And so we did the last camp in or camp out in 2019. And then we did the camp in in 2020 and there was just some talk of kind of rethinking the model and then COVID hit. So we haven't had a chance to kind of <clears throat> regroup and coalesce. So the future is pretty ambiguous. And, um, and again, I don't know where it's going to land. I have a real, because of this relationship with our fans, which has been, I mean, this is why I can do something like silver smoke of dreams. It's why, and why I can do it to such a high level is because I have, you know, people gave me some money to record that. They also, you know, they'll buy five copies and give it to friends. It's just like that support has meant a lot because it really has meant that I have been able to, uh, operate creative creatively. Like I want to, you know, I have sponsors for my art. Um, and I know, Camper is very important to these people. So I have this real uh, kind of feeling of obligation that I'd like to, at the very least, go and do it one more time, if not several more times, but I'd like to go play this music for people. Um, 
because I think they deserve it because they've been good to us, you know? And everyone's been so separated from their live music for so long, you know, I mean, obviously some of it's come back, but a lot of it still hasn't. So you, 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 you miss it that much more. Right. And, you know, and we're at a stage, you know, it's like, this is a, you know, this is a long relationship now. It's like in, in next year, well, it's 2022 now, next year, 2023, it'll be 40 years of, of David and I making music together, which is a really long time. Um, and it's hard to ignore how special that is, but also, you know, time is time, you know, age as my friend, Bruce Kappen says to me, age is a real thing. Um, as much as we want to try and defy it. Um, you know, I mean, I think we are hitting a point where we're going to start to think about, do I need to do this anymore? Or or how much do I want to do this? Or how do I want to do it? Um, it's just, it's just, it's in the cards because of economically where we landed. Um, you know, I'm pretty good with change and I'm pretty good with things. Uh, you know, sometimes things just have an organic end. I, I don't, you know, I don't like bumming people out with that, but it's just the way things are. And so I guess my, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of how to do this with some class and some dignity. That's what I'm thinking right now. I'm sure I'll find a way, you know, I love making these little solo records. I'm sure I'll find a way economically to make that work as, as to how I love playing in front of people that was a lot of the motivation for uh, for playing bass for eyelids is just because, you know, in the, in the towns they do well, they have these really good audiences who really enjoy what the band does. But I, I'm still conflicted on how this quite works for me economically. Uh, you know, and I'm sure I'm I'm hardly the only one my age who's been doing this for a long time. is having to rethink things right now. So uh, it kind of sucks, but it's just kind of what it is. Well, I'm glad you're still making music. Uh, it's really excellent and it's really great to hear it. And I hope I get to see it and hear it in person sometime soon in, in various incarnations. I think, uh, you'll, have, you'll have to bring them to Chicago. So. Yeah, eyelids are definitely coming to Chicago in June, I think. So I'll definitely get in touch and let you know. Oh, awesome. That would be great. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, you know, again, I've, I've been a fan and also just like liked you personally for a long time and I'm really glad we're able to do this. So yeah, no, I was too. I, I totally appreciate it. It's good to talk about this stuff with you. That's it for episode 19 of Carol pop. Thanks so much to Victor Krumenacher for sharing so many insights and stories and such great music. I'm a fan. Victor's albums, such as last year's Silver Smoke of Dreams, can be bought from his website, victorkrumenacher.com. That's V-I-C-T-O-R-K-R-U-M-M-E-N-A-C-H-E-R.com. You got that? The band Eyelids also will be touring this spring, so keep an eye out for when Victor and the group make it to your town. And of course... Pick up those old Camper Van Beethoven records. They're great. Thanks to the Carol Pop team, including web developer Marty Rosenbaum and Lou Carlozo, who recorded that catchy Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who agrees with Camper that life is grand. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. And visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks. Thanks.